The hymn I, the hymn I read at the end of this sermon earlier was hymn number 321. And I noticed, noted before I read it, I said, listen to the, to the language. Listen to the metaphors he uses here. He, he goes back to creation. He talks about uh, the Garden of Eden, paradise. He, he has language that's connected to the promised land. He has language, obviously, that's connected to both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and specifically the Son of God incarnate. And then he has language that, that forecasts, that looks uh, to the future, all in one hymn, tying together various motifs, uh, teachings of Scripture found in both the Old and the New Testament in hymnotic fashion, wonderful, rich theology in that hymn, I think reflective of what I was trying to say and reflective of Hebrews 3 and 4 and other places in Scripture. There's another hymn. We sing it, 324, if you'd like to turn there. It does a similar thing, and I want to read that to you. Hymn number 324. Take your hymnals out, turn to 324, and I'll expound the hymn for you. That's what it sounds like. So remember, we're looking at creational motifs, new creation. Uh, Old light, new light. Old creation, new creation. God, Christ, kind of things. Garden, promised land, future, now. This day at thy creating word. First, o'er the earth, the light was poured. O Lord, this day upon us shine and fill our souls with light divine. Talking about the first day. This day the Lord for sinners slain in might, victorious, rose again. O Jesus, may we raised be from death of sin to life in thee. This day the Holy Spirit came with fiery tongues of cloven flame. O Spirit, fill our hearts this day with grace to hear and Grace to pray. O oh, day of light and life and grace from earthly toil, sweet resting place. Thy hallowed hours, blessed gift of God, give we again to God above. All praise to God the Father be. All praise, eternal Son, to thee, whom with the Spirit we adore forever and forever more. There are many other hymns in our hymnal that are reflective of the same theology informing it. You realize all hymn writers have an informing theology, an understanding of the word of God that influences their their written products. And some of these older hymn writers had the right informing theology because when you read these, even if you don't can't put a scripture text to all the flowery language they're using, you know that it's reflecting the Bible. And I think that's one reason why when some of these, when we sing them, even though we can't, you know, put scripture text to everything, since we know it's in the Bible, we enjoy singing the hymns. Now, there are many things I could say in light of what I said this morning. I could say I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I, I... Prepare a lecture and pray God turns it into preaching is my theory. Prepare a good lecture and pray that God turns it into a sermon is my is my working uh, theory. Um, and I know this morning's material there's a lot of it and some of it was old and you've heard it and hear it almost every week and 
If you were going, I've heard that before. Um, I'm saying that to myself. They've heard this before. I've said this before, and sometimes I get discouraged and almost, yeah, discouraged while I'm preaching because I'm going, this is old hat. They, they already know this. I, already, I know this, and they know it, and they're going to get tired, and, but I hopefully we, that doesn't happen to us. You're probably not as wicked as I am, so I'll, I'll get on with this, but there are a lot of implications we can draw from this. One thing that was mentioned to me afterwards, and it's not here, it came from our deacon, okay, so I'm giving him credit, uh, but it's his informing theology that led him this way. You know, if you read, keep reading in Hebrews 4, there's this thing called a throne of grace on which the king of grace sits, in, in the language of Scripture, at the right hand of the Father, as the monarch of the new creation, as the last Adam, having done the work of a servant, he is now exalted on high, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He finished his work. He entered his rest. And the connection that was made in a conversation afterwards was, if you remember back to my sermon on Genesis 2, about eight years ago in this series, this divine rest, remember we talked about that? God works and then God enters into rest. I used the language of, well, it's a royal rest, though. This is, this is, this is the sovereign one enthroned over his creatures, and earth has become his footstool, and heaven has become his dwelling place with creatures. That's temple language used of the original creation. Earth becomes the footstool, and heaven is the special dwelling place. That's creation itself. What happens in new creation? The, the God-man works and then enters what kind of rest? Royal rest, right? And he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's got majestic sweetness, sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow, hymn 143, I think it is. Wonderful hymn, we sing that. It's about, it's about our Savior in his royal rest. It's royal, he's kingly, it's rest, it's not doing the work in order to accomplish Redemption, it's the dispensing of the benefits to creatures, sinners like us, from heaven to, uh, to earth. So there's a lot of other things you can do with this royal rest at creation and royal rest at recreation and themes that might come up into your mind and you might be connecting things and wonder, are these connected? And my normal answer is some of you come up with those connections. I go, well, yeah, they're connected. We might not know how they're connected or how to explain it, but we know that, in one sense, every word in Scripture is connected to every other word, right? Because it's the written word of God, and there's ultimately one author. So of the implications I want to share with you, I think I have four very briefly. First, there is a present Sabbath rest, a Sabbath keeping for the people of God under the inaugurated new covenant. This is what the Old Testament prophesied 
Remember that? Isaiah 56. Isaiah 58 too. Isaiah 60 or 61 as well. Jeremiah 31. The law written on the heart. The only law God himself wrote prior to that time with his own finger. It was that which he wrote on stone tablets. And then Paul says, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of heart, that is the flesh. Same law written. We got, the, we got to deal with the fourth commandment. The prophets prophesied that the new covenant uh, uh, church state inaugurated by Christ would have to deal with the fourth commandment. But second, the present Sabbath rest for the people of God to enter in, excuse me, second, the present Sabbath rest is for the people of God to enter into and remain in. The whole passage is about perseverance. So there's rest can be, and is, understood in more than one way in the passage. Rest in terms of salvation rest, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be, shall not, uh, shall be saved. Um, I will give you rest, okay? So those are the, I'll give you the benefits of redemption if you come to me. I'll, you'll be saved, okay? There's that kind of rest in the passage. There's also an eschat- a future rest in the passage, Hebrews 3 and 4. But there's also a present rest in the passage, that is, a present keeping of a day holy unto the Lord. Third uh, implication or observation from what's been said, the present Sabbath rest is founded on the work of Christ and the accomplishment of redemption, the foundation of the new creation. The present Sabbath rest is founded on the work of Christ in the accomplishment of redemption, the foundation of the new creation. Now let's, let's keep, let's follow this. Now let's go back and here we are, the disciples watching the incarnate Son of God accomplish uh, the, the work of redemption and he completes it uh, in the apex of his sufferings. Uh, was his death, and and then he's buried, and then the resurrection of the Son of God was promised by the incarnate Son of God before he was killed. Destroy the temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Then, as he said, he was going to leave them according to his human nature, because on the other hand, and lo, I am with you always. Remember that? you gotta got, got to account for both things going on there. I'm going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. What do you mean you're you're leaving? I thought you were God. Well, I'm going to leave you according to my human nature because I'm the last Adam. And I'm going where Adam failed to go. He failed to go to that state that the divine rest was a symbol of, was an invitation to the creature. You obey me and I'll give you glory. So he ascends because he's going to take the station of the last Adam, not merely in, uh, on the earth, but in heaven over the entire earth. And you remember when Dr. Renhan read Psalm 24? And it was like, wait a minute, gates are opening, the 
king of glory is going in. What is that talking about? My soul last week was soaring in the first, first row when he did that because I'm going, this is, this is about, this isn't about me in Psalm 24. This is about the Lord. This is last Adam terminology without calling him the last Adam. This is, this is the ascension and the entrance into this created place called heaven where God manifests himself to elect, uh, elect angels and, and departed souls of believers. He's going there and he's going there uh, on our behalf and as our forerunner as well. We're going there too. Anyway, did I say number three yet? Yes. The present Sabbath rest is founded on the work of Christ and the accomplishment of redemption, the foundation of the new creation. That work is the foundation upon which salvation rest is offered to man and always has been since the fall, which rest is inclusive of a day of rest that is symbolic of and typifying a future eschatological rest. Okay, so here's what I just said. We have a day still, just like they did. We have a day because that day's not here. Until that day's here, not all days are the same. Somebody wants to say, well, all days are the Lord's, but not every day is the Lord's day, okay? All food is God's, but not every supper is the Lord's supper, right? We have a holy calendar, unlike theirs, but like theirs. Theirs came from God, and ours comes from God. Theirs came from God through Moses. Ours comes from God through he whom Moses was typifying. And all the third graders said, Jesus. Fourth, this Sabbath rest is reflective of the fact that our Lord entered his rest via his first day resurrection for us and for our salvation. Or we could put it this way, he entered Glory, remember, sufferings and glory. He entered, according to his human nature, the eschatological state, which was actually proffered, offered, by God to Adam in Eden. He entered, he entered creaturely rest, that was offered by the creator to the first creature in the image of God, Adam, assuming his perfect obedience, Christ, according to his human nature, enters that rest, proferred in Eden, typified in Canaan. We got some of that in the passage in Colossians, uh, Hebrews 3 and 4. Remember, older saints, hey, how's, how's Uncle Fred doing? He crossed the Jordan. What do they mean by that? He's absent from the body. He's present with the Lord. But they use the Jordan River as a cross from he's on the earth, he went to heaven. That means, according to the old people, and I think they're right, are the seasoned saints. Sorry, I'm, I'm a seasoned saint myself now. Canaan was 
actually telling the world, this ain't it. There's something better than the promised land. Whose land is better than the promised land? Emmanuel's land. Thank you, honey. What an astute theologian. Emmanuel's land, of course. So our Lord entered glory, the eschatological state, proffered in Eden, typified in Canaan, but attained only by him. Nobody before Christ attained this glory. Nobody after Christ attains this glory, that is, by personally uh, obeying God and earning or meriting it. There's only one throughout the entirety of the history of very men and very women and very children, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you got to have him. He's got to be, he's mine. I don't understand everything there is to know about Jesus, but I need my sins forgiven, and I don't want to live in either hell or even this, the world as in the way it presently is for the rest of my existence. Then come to Christ. The inaugurated New Covenant's Sabbath day reflects redemptive historical conditions brought in by the sufferings and glory of our Lord, just as the Old Testament predicted it would, he would, and the Gospels confirmed that he did. That was a mouthful right there, right? But remember, I've said this before. Second commandment and fourth commandment are still abiding, but the application of both looks different this side of the cross resurrection of Christ. Why? Because of Christ, because of the redemptive historical circumstances or conditions he brings in. He brings the types and shadows to a state of fulfillment. And so things change. Finally, this remaining Sabbath rest corresponds to the original creational rest of God. As with many divine acts, earlier acts of God often typify later acts of God, which end up being greater acts of God. Let me say that again. As with many divine acts, earlier acts of God often typify later acts of God, which are greater acts of God, that are, some, that are often similar and dissimilar. For instance, great act of God. Uh, I'll use Bible language. Mighty hand, right arm, goes down. Figure of speech here, by the way. From heaven, let us go down there. And he goes down and he thumps Pharaoh on the head or sticks a dagger in him and he rescues his people. He takes them through this he causes a wind to split the sea open and his people walk through safely and the enemies of God and his people are destroyed. That's a great act of God, isn't it? He takes his people from a dark place under the dominion of Pharaoh and takes them to a light place, the promised land. 
He, he rescued them, didn't he? Um, not only did he rescue them, he transferred them or translated them from one place to another, didn't he? Giving, you see what I just did? I went back to the Exodus. And now I'm going to go to new Exodus language. Not in the prophets, but it's all over Isaiah. Isaiah looks back and says, you think that's something? Wait till you see the Exodus that's coming. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light because he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Where'd Paul get that language from? Moses or God? What does that teach us? An earlier act of God sets the world up for a greater act of God in the future. Is it a great act of God to save the ancient Israelites from Egyptian bondage? Yes, but it pales in insignificance compared to the exodus wrought by the Son of God, the saving of people in the clutches of the devil's hands, taking us out of not just horizontal darkness from a despot, but from the despotism of the devil, taking us out of that sphere and putting us into the sphere of light and salvation and grace and love and mercy and all those things in such a way as that we can't like trip our way out of grace. We can't, we can't fall back into that state of existence. We can look like it sometimes and maybe feel like it sometimes, but he won't let us. So these This remaining Sabbath rest corresponds to the original creational rest of God, which was a great work in itself. But might we say, was God even there trying to hint at something, uh, this side of the fall into sin, of, of a future rest that was actually a saving rest wrought by somebody else on behalf of the Adamites, us, uh, I think we could say that. God the creator and redeemer worked then rested and God the mediator, God and man, worked then rested. Just as the creator's acts were both divine exemplars imperatival for man, work of creation and the royal rest, so also with the acts of the mediator our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, those are my four implications from what I said this morning. And I said, I have a short sermon, and I I do. So may the Lord help us think about our Savior better in light of what we've heard today, Um, worship him better, and live for him better. I don't think there's anybody here saying, I don't want to live for Jesus better. Right? We do want to. We want to show our love and our gratitude. We do want to be bolder. Don't you want to be bolder and speak about him to, to, un, to lost people more than you do? You say, no, I already evangelized. It's not enough. Matter of fact, I got enough evangelism in my past. I don't have to evangelize ever again. I, I, shouldn't, I don't have to speak about Christ ever again. Or been there, done that. You know, I've graduated. No, we don't want to do that, Okay. 
We want to love him better. We want to serve him. Oh, to love and serve him better. May he be gracious to us and and help us and and, uh, drill his word in our heads and hearts so that we would indeed love him better and, and serve him better. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We pray for the the light of understanding that comes from heaven into souls that causes us to see things that we might have read but haven't connected, haven't understood before. Help us to understand more, to, to uh, link more truths together, to see this glorious portrait that the scripture gives to us of not only the royal creator, but the royal redeemer, our Lord Jesus. Now bless as we obey him in taking this supper together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.